Thank you to everyone that has tuned into 52 Weeks of Hustle thus far and has made it such a huge success. Crazy to think we're nearing the end of season two. In addition, thank you for all the kind words and support of the book, Hustle Your Way to Success in Sports Sales. I hope it can continue to be beneficial as you push to be elite. General Sports Worldwide has continued to pick up steam in both the search and recruiting space, as well as the overall consulting space, which consists of sales and leadership training. We are only continuing to grow as we've just acquired the Clubhouse, an industry-leading job board, mentorship platform, mental health platform, and an extensive training portal. Please let us know if we can ever be of assistance and be sure to fill out a profile on the Clubhouse. Be sure to follow on 52weeksofhustle.com as well as Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle. I'm Travis Apple, and I'll be your host of this podcast. I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports sales industry, and I wanted the opportunity to give back, to give back to those individuals that want to get in this business, or for those that are in this business that want to continue to excel at an elite level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been important, hence the name. Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career growth what it takes to be successful, and ultimately a few key takeaways for you to apply to your everyday. Without further ado, our guest this week. Imagine being the sixth employee of a startup company and then continue to grow and become the CEO of that industry-leading company. Our next guest did just as I'm excited to have Stu Hallberg, CEO of Logitech. Stu, welcome to the show. Thanks, Trav. I'm excited. Uh, what do they say on the radio? Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. So I've got the... Uh, <laughs> I've got the national title game uh, right behind you, so if I get a little distracted, that's why. Well, I'm certainly excited to, to be taping this. Obviously, I know the, the amount of work and effort you put into it, so it's no stranger to the listeners. Uh, we're taping this podcast late at night, but what a great career you've had. I'm certainly excited to dive into your illustrious career, so let's start from the beginning. You grow up in the D, Detroit, Michigan, then get to the state of Florida as you attend University of Central Florida studying economics. What did you think you wanted to do career-wise? To be honest, I really had no idea. Um, You know, sports, business, um, and not to get, I guess, totally derailed early on, but I actually find it kind of fascinating how early uh, people have to declare their major in college. You know, I'm sure someone's looked at the data, um, but I'd be curious to see what percentage of people end up working long-term in the field that they went to school for. I, I know for me, the econ degree has certainly come in handy, especially with, with the larger part of my career being in ticketing. Um, but I really think the things that I've leaned on most is, is all the stuff, you know, I've learned after grad school, the data science, data engineering, a lot of that self-taught. So yeah, going into to undergrad, I had no idea. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that. And I, I often have that conversation with people is, you know, in college, I, you know, I triple majored and I am doing nothing compared to any of those, <laughs> but I, and I knew early on but I didn't want to change my major, you know, cause I had to declare so early. So I, you know, you're right. I, I would love to see the insights on that. And, you know, as you were going through undergrad, you end up landing a role with the Florida Panthers in hockey operations. So walk the listeners through that experience for you. Sure. Um, I'm still trying to get over. I didn't know you had a triple major. I'm, I'm impressed and also skeptical. Um, but, <laughs> it was from the Harvard of Ohio. So yeah, I do know that. Uh, no, the hockey ops thing, you know, it was cool. It was honestly, it was every 22 year old's dream. I I was incredibly fortunate. Someone, so I played hockey at UCF, um, you know, which is the the Michigan hockey of Florida, I guess you'd call it. Um, And someone on our team was the the director of hockey administration and was able to help me get my foot in the door. 
Um, so when I was there, I started off doing our salary cap administration, I, uh, our collective bargaining compliance, and what was at the time, you know, considered advanced analytics. Though, though truthfully, like it's nothing what people are doing now. Um, I got to sit in the war room, listen to trade calls. I like to say that I was just a fatter, less smart version of Jonah Hill from Moneyball. Um, <laughs> you know, a co- couple of years in, I, I eventually I was scouting the ECHL, the Western Hockey League. Uh, it really was the coolest job. Um, after a couple of years, I realized it was, it was definitely a different lifestyle than, than I wanted. Uh, the story I tell people of when I knew it was time to move on. And, um, you know, I remember it was around the holidays and I was driving from Red Deer, Alberta to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, just in the middle of a whiteout blizzard, thinking that I was going to die alone on the side of the road in yeah. Saskatchewan. And, and fortunately, I made it. Um, and, and cool enough, the player I actually went to see, we ended up drafting in the first round. Um, so even though I knew at the time it was probably going to be my last season in that role, uh, being part of that process was really neat. You know, and, and it's good advice there, Stu, as, as a lot of people, you know, are coming out of college, like, I'd love to work in the sport operation because I'm passionate about sports. And, you know, you quickly realize, like anything, that, you know, maybe the grass isn't greener on the other side. And after some time, you end up becoming the director of analytics with the Panthers and now more on the business side. You end up spending a total of five and a half years with the organization. You kind of talked a little bit about that, but what ultimately led you down the path of the business analytics part? Sure. Yeah. So, Realized, you know, that that hockey office wasn't the lifestyle I wanted. I left sports. I actually went to, to Washington, D.C. and uh, took a job with the International Monetary Fund. Um, and then getting back into sports, you know, I really owe that all. Um, and honestly, most of my career to, to some guy I randomly sat next to when I was in hockey office at the Panthers. His name was Andre Tarian. I think a lot of the listeners probably remember him. He's, he's not in industry anymore. Um, you know, he was our head of business operations at the time. And while I was in hockey ops, he was doing a lot of the things for the business side that I was doing for the hockey team, like scraping box scores and building player models. So uh, just by sheer luck, you know, we sat next to each other, we became good friends, we collaborated on a lot of projects. You know, I, I learned a ton from him. So when I left industry, uh, and this was actually during the time of the lockout, lockout got lifted, uh, they got approved for some budget, some headcount to bring in somebody in business analytics. They had no headcount in, in analytics. And, uh, and I thought it was a unique challenge. We had no CRM, no data warehouse, very minimal reporting. So um, I took the leap, wanted to go work for someone I considered a friend and a mentor, and it ended up being a really good decision. Now, you know, certainly, Andre, what a great guy he is. And you talked about being a mentor, right? And so what is your advice to listeners on being able to find, and maybe it's not only one mentor, but multiple mentors early on in your career? Yeah, I, I think... It's, uh, it's variety. It's uh, much like dating, a numbers game. Uh, you know, you, you can kind of tell the people that you gravitate towards quickest. You know, I think you kind of have, people have different, um, you know, they have different pace, right? And I think if you find somebody who matches that, uh, you stick with them. I think you, you find people who are of similar mindset. You know, you're going to find some that you don't jive with super well. Um, so I think a lot of the advice that, anybody asked me, it's, it's about reaching out. It's about being available and meeting as many people as possible. You know, if I didn't develop that relationship with Andre, again, I do not candidly think I'd be sitting in this seat. Uh, so not just not being afraid to ask for advice, you know, grab a cup of coffee, build a relationship because you don't know who's going to end up being that type of relationship for you. So it's perfect transition in the next part. We talked about, you know, not being afraid, 
be willing to take risk. And, you know, for as long as I've known you, that's something that I've always appreciated and respected of you. And so after five and a half years with the Panthers organization, you take what's on paper and probably in your mind, a little bit of a risk. You go work for a startup in Dynasty Sports and Entertainment, which was a secondary ticket provider. And again, you're the sixth employee of that organization. So what went into the decision making for that process? So really tough decision, right? Because at the time, you know, I was working with with my mentor, Andre, I really liked what I was doing. We carved out kind of a really good, really good path there. Um, Loved what I had done with the Panthers and um, it was ironic. The last major project that I had worked on with the Panthers was, was working on our reseller consolidation. Um, and that's actually how I came to know the folks at Dynasty. And, you know, through that process, we really, we hit it off. I, I thought it was, you know, a unique opportunity and can kind of see that that's where the industry was transitioning. Um, you know, we talk about risk, like back then, nine years ago or so, like it was a different world. Um, partnerships that are incredibly common today Back then, we're like, you know, working with the dark side. I, I, I right. candidly, very vividly remember asking some folks I was close with, some folks I consider mentors, if if I'd ever be able to, to come back and work for a team if I took that job at Dynasty. And half of them said, no way in hell. Yeah. And, uh, and the other half said, you know what, it's going to be an uphill battle. Um, the industry's going that way. So it's probably going to be great for your career. So um, the role was perfect. The location was great. I was you know living in South Florida, and I really believed in the people at Dynasty. And um, you know, it turned out to be a great decision, right? Fast forward nine years and, and I'm here on this podcast with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you know, you mentioned earlier, Stu, you, you grow up, you play hockey in college. You probably had at one point in time, your dream job first in the hockey operations, and then you're still working for a hockey team. You take that risk. You're willing to go outside of your comfort zone, outside of other people's comfort zones. And so what's your advice on to listeners on just being willing to take a risk and no matter what role they're in? Yeah. So I think I'm actually a fairly risk averse person by nature. Um, but one thing I have realized is and what I would tell people is sometimes the bigger risk is, is not taking the risk at all. You know, look at recent economy and inflation. It's a perfect proxy. If, if you're standing still, you're actually moving backwards. Uh, so I think understanding risk is really important. Uh, thinking about things with, with the data science hat, you know, thinking about probabilistic outcomes of events. Everything has a risk and reward trade-off. And really that curve is kind of along the line of, of how likelihood each outcome is. So when it comes to risk, you know, know how much you could be giving up, know what you stand to gain and, and how likely each of those outcomes might be. And from there, you pick a risk tolerance strategy and you stick to it. And you really, you know, you treat that as your North Star, you be consistent. I think the quickest way to fail is to consistently change strategy and uh, I do strongly believe that a good plan done consistently is always going to outperform a great plan done inconsistently. Uh, no, great, great advice. And a lot of this business is about being consistent. And to your point, finding that North Star and sticking to it. You've clearly, if you've done your due diligence and research, you have a path to be successful. You build out that blueprint. And so now speaking of blueprint, speaking of startups, Stu, with any startup, I'm sure there are some dark days, certainly a lot of stress frustration, you know, at times pulling your hair out, what motivated you each and every day to just keep moving and knowing that you made that right, right decision? Yeah. Well, one, I think the biggest difference is back then I was pulling my hair out and now I'm just naturally losing it. But, (laughs) um, but yeah, like it was, you know, I'll give, I'll give uh, the team at dynasty when I joined uh, a ton of credit, um, even before I got there, we didn't have the same troubles that a traditional startup would. We were well-funded, 
um, while we ne didn't necessarily have fully baked products developed, you know, we did have offerings that were desired by the market and we had the means to execute on them. I think the dark times were just sometimes just trying to figure out things on the fly. Um, you know, we didn't have anybody who had built a business before, so we were all just kind of winging it. And, and while the general direction of the business was, you know, going up and to the right, there was definitely some rough patches. But uh, I had a genuine belief in in the process, in the market, in our people, and our ability to execute. So, you know, waking up each day it made that a lot easier. I think I think that's actually really important. You know, being involved in something that you deep down believe in, because I think it's probably a lot like a lot of my relationships. Because if you have to fake it, it's it's going to be really hard to find success in that. Yep. No, and, and, you know, Stu, we kicked this off and talked about how you've grown within the company. You, you've been there over, over nine years now and, and a lot to talk about with now your new role at Logitech. And so, Stu, you started out as the VP of Strategy and Analytics. Then you moved to SVP of Strategy and Analytics before promoted to CEO just about 10 months ago. So first, what do you feel like you did on a consistent basis to continue to rise within the organization? Um, you know, besides organize a coup to get our private equity group to buy out the existing CEO. Um, <laughs> I was kidding. Um, you know, honestly, and I've told people this, I never once in my life woke up and said, I want to be a CEO. Um, I think the easiest things to look back on in terms of, you know, if you'd say, you know, how'd you get to that point? It, you know, it's to be available, to be valuable and just good at your job and to be in general, a good person. Um, I was very lucky to join Dynasty so early that I didn't really have a choice but to be involved in everything. Um, it gave me an inside look at, at every function, a need to interact with people in every group. Um, and, and so because of that, you know, I became what I would consider a cultural leader and, and doing that was key. Um, you know, in my initial role as the head of our data team, uh, our, our data team, we were a shared service. We were supporting business development, pricing, partnerships, accounting, uh, product, operations, everything. So. Um, that role was a really good platform to, to showcase some of those things, you know, showcase that you're willing to work hard, uh, you know, show results, you know, proven success. And, and again, being a good person because you know, nobody wants to work for an asshole. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so several years ago, you mentioned the company Dynasty Sports and Entertainment sold to a private equity firm in ZMC, you know, and then the company went through a rebrand of what it is today. And, you know, ZMC is is a very good privately, you know, backed equity company that has the 2K League amongst Second City, amongst many other business ventures. And so how was it going through for your end through a leadership and an ownership change? Yeah, awesome experience. New for me, definitely. Um, a lot of politics, a lot of opinions, a lot of ideas, healthy disagreements, tough decisions. Um, but fortunately, it was, it was a lot of really good people collaborating on a lot of really good initiatives. Um, one of my favorite phrases is dissent and commit, which is, you know, fight your battles privately, align, and then move forward publicly. And, and that mindset was definitely tested throughout that process. Um, but it was really cool to be part of. Even, you know, even the ownership change in private equity, um, you know, it was, you know, it was tough to, you know, see my friends and, and you know, being there since day one and, and the sixth employee to, you know, see the company turn over to ZMC. Um, but the, the actual experience of, of going out to market, looking for strategic partners, like I'm actually really grateful to be part of that process. That was so new to me. Uh, really grateful that we did end up with ZMC. Um, you know, they were so instrumental in getting us through COVID, but also letting us run our business and, and going through the brand launch. And, 
Um, all that was, was things I've never been a part of. And, and I'm proud as hell at the people that worked on the project and how it all turned out. Um, you know, launching a brand during COVID is tricky to navigate. But in hindsight, I think we crushed it. And again, like I'm really excited. I'm wearing my Logitech's gear right now. So I'm really proud of, of what we've been able to do, despite, like you said, you know, leadership change, ownership change, COVID, all that kind of happening at once. Um, so good experience. Hope to not necessarily make it a habit. <laughs> Um, but was uh, a lesson learned in, in navigating those waters. Yeah, no, absolutely. And as, as you think about, you know, many of the listeners may not necessarily go through an ownership change or complete rebrand change, but most will probably go through some sort of change in leadership in some part of their career. So what is your advice to listeners on being willing to, to adapt, evolve, and, and undertake that? Yeah, I, that kind of change is always tricky, right? I mean, you've probably been part of it. Um, when there's a change at the top, whether it's leadership, ownership, everyone's kind of jockeying for position. People are concerned for their jobs, their own livelihoods. Um, I remember someone once told me that you should always dislocate your shoulder, patting yourself on the back because no one else is going to do it for you. And uh, <laughs> while, while I understand the sentiment, I actually think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, right? It's, it's absolutely critical to make sure that you get the recognition you deserve, especially with new folks coming in. Uh, but you do have to do it with tact. You have to be proud of what you've accomplished and, you know, not do it in too much of a, a braggadocious way. Um, and also, like I said earlier with the mentorship, like don't be afraid to reach out and try to build a relationship with new people. Um, you know, I was very fortunate with ZMC in that process. Like I was part of, uh, you know, part of all that. So I, I had a built-in relationship with them. But um, when they did come aboard, I encouraged all of our employees, reach out, introduce themselves, set up some time to talk. Um, you know, when, when ZMC was in town, make sure people were around to just even, you know, put a face to a name, making yourself visible, not an afterthought, I think is the best way to kind of go through that. There are going to be uh, times where just things are outside of your control. I went through an ownership change and there was just a list of people that weren't going to make the cut and it had nothing to do with efficacy or anything like that. So, uh, you know, the Yormark family control of the controllables certainly is, is a valuable um, mindset, but sometimes you just have to kind of deal with the hand you're dealt and you can control, you know, being present again, being available and, and hopefully that will help. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Again, we're here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. The guest today is Stu Hallberg, CEO of Logitix. So, Stu, throughout the last few years, the ticketing landscape has really changed, both on the primary and secondary side. So what do you feel like has been the biggest adjustment you and the team have had to make? Um, 
I think the biggest adjustment is just reacting to the competition. You know, like I said, eight years ago, there wasn't nearly as much competition. Uh, when I joined Dynasty, very few teams were using a distribution and yield management partner. Now everyone is. Uh, a lot of the core services that um, you know we offer have been somewhat commoditized. I'd be disingenuous if I sat here and said, we're the only ones who can do what we do. Do I think we do it the best? Yeah, of course. Um, but so specifically in the last few years, I think that composition has driven innovation and improvement, <clears throat> more direct integrations with teams, marketplaces, primaries, different points of sale, deeper data relationships, um, strategic alliances. These are all things that are now becoming more pervasive than ever. So in thinking about adjustments, it, it's really, and for myself personally, devoting more time uh, and resources to really thinking about what that next mountain to climb is, right? We had a lot of uh, success with auto processor and being one of the first to market with a distribution automation platform. So we got a bit of a head start in that. So uh, with that competition, you know, I think the big pivot is you know, how do we find other areas that we can mimic that success, mimic that first market, gain that market share, um, I think is going to be critical. You know, and to that point, you talked about innovation, which is such a key in our industry, no matter what role you're in. And one of the biggest innovative accomplishments you've made was you helped oversee and, and helped implement the development of the company's pricing intelligence platform. And so walk the listeners through that. Yeah, I uh, won't go too much into the weeds and technical details, but our pricing intelligence platform, uh, we fondly call it PIP, um, not like the character in South Park, though uh, he has been become a bit of a mascot. Um, so that started off as just an internal tool that we built to efficiently price the inventory that we manage for our partners. Um, we did get market feedback that, you know, we'd be on calls with our partners and they'd really want to peek under the hood. So um, we've since extended that application and exposed and sell it externally, which has been really great. Um, but the idea with PIP is, you know, given a set of strategic inputs, meaning what are the, the goals um, of the user? How do we most efficiently and optimally price inventory down to the sea level? Our tool specifically is equal parts art and science, combining automation, predictive models, and, and of course, the human touch. You know, pricing is hard. You, you might have five different pricing strategies for a single event, and then you layer in all the complications that COVID has had on historical data that are driving a lot of these models. So, so our goal with PIP was to create a tool that's both smart and adaptable so that um, anyone who wants to either flip a switch and let automation run or manually input every price change or anything in between has the most efficient, frictionless, effective way to do that. So um, I'm really proud of our platform. Um, I'm really proud of the team building it. And it's something for me personally, that was the first product that I ever was truly able to work on. Um, so I'm, I'm excited at the success we've had and, and where we're going to be able to take it next. No, very exciting times. And now Logitech is certainly known as a leader in optimization of ticket sales through dynamic pricing and distribution. And the organization has partners in the concert and live events, plus teams across all the professional, minor and collegiate sports teams. And so many people are always asking, you know, what are some of the similarities and differences amongst live events, professional and different sports? So what would you say from a pricing and optimization or some of those kind of across the board? So I think the... The similarities are really two things. One, uh, a seat in a venue has a value relative to others, right? So whether that's a front row seat at a concert compared to an upper level seat or a seat behind, behind home plate, um, differing from a seat in left field in the baseball stadium, and also the value of an event relative to the others, right? You know, understanding um, a Tuesday concert's value versus a Saturday. So a lot of the 
the, the modeling and you know, weighting of the variables that go behind uh, assigning valuable to a specific seat and in a specific event, I think persist across each of those. Um, you know, what are the bigger differences? I think it's just the consumer, um, you know, understanding the buying behaviors of different verticals. I think groups that have done a really good job of understanding and uh, being smart and adaptable to that are, are the marketplaces. You know, they understand that a performing arts buyer has a different profile than a sports buyer and in a, in a single game buyer has a different profile than a group buyer. Um, so being able to make smart decisions, um, take advantage of even, you know, just when we talk about the massive revenue scale in our industry, you know, selling 1% more tickets or raising prices 1% um, has a significant impact to the bottom line of everybody. So, you know, being able to understand those different profiles and, and the characteristics of those buyers, that's the biggest, to me, uh, variance between, between the two uh, verticals. No, I appreciate that insight. And Stu, you know, as, as you mentioned early on in the podcast, you know, there's, there's a lot of competition now in this space and there's competition in everything, you know, as it relates to sport, both on the business and the, in the sports side. And so it's big in the sports industry on all sides of things, as we talked about, why do you feel like competition is always good in the market? Yeah, uh, piggybacking off of what I said earlier, uh, competition drives innovation. Um, really not just in business, but I think personally, I think an element of competition is, is always good. Everything, I think, has to have a context to it. How do you know if something you're doing is good, great, bad, adequate? You need something to compare it to. Um, are there downsides to competition? Of course, nobody in our space likes the margin pressure, but it forces us to scale and be more efficient. And, um, you know, competition leads to better quality, more variety, and that's genuinely good for everybody. Competition drives growth. It teaches humility and resilience and, and all those things just kind of from a macro level are, are required for a high functioning society. So uh, competition, while sometimes frustrating, long-term, very good for everybody. Now, Stu, going along the lines of your, your kind of day-to-day, you're now the CEO and, and you know, you've kind of grown your career through the analytics route. And, you know, I, I've, know, I've made jokes to you, you know, and they're, they're definitely serious of you're, you're the best sales analytics person I've ever met. But as you think about you kind of growing in your career now into the CEO chair, what do you feel like you do on a consistent basis to be able to deal with so many different personalities and different mindsets and different culture and motivation tactics? So one, I appreciate the, uh, the compliment. I actually think, um, you know, we've got a bit of a core group of some of the data-minded folks who we've all started around the same time. Um, you know, the Jay Rylas and Aaron LaValle, there's tons of people that I have a ton of respect for who I think fit that characteristic of um, data-minded individuals who, you know, fit the mold of, you know, they might not know it, but they're always selling, right? Whether it's selling themselves or selling an idea up to leadership and, um, I'm really p- proud of that group. I know, you know, when my role changed, I had a lot of outreach within that group. And it's it's been really cool to see the kind of uh, the shift in decision-making power um, to people who come from a data and analytics background, which you know, I think is a slightly different track than a lot of folks you have, have on your podcast. Um, you know, I think having a long fuse has been a, a key differentiator. There's just oftentimes a lot of frustrating conversations because there's different mindsets with things. So to be able to see both sides of the coin, to be able to wade through politically a you know frustrating conversation, get to 
an aligned outcome that everybody's happy with, you know, sometimes that's challenging. There's very different priorities between a traditional sales function and an analytics function, right? There's, there's oftentimes some friction there. So being able to navigate that um, has been massively beneficial to, to my role evolving over the course of my career. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's one thing I would express to a lot of people is like, you know, be open, you know, definitely have conviction in, 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 in your thoughts. Um, but there's a lot of good perspectives out there. Um, you know, being able to lean on people who have been in industry for a long time, thinking about how things have always been done and, you know, innovating again, using that word on top of it, um, you know, just with the backgrounds that a lot of folks uh, in my background have, I, I think it's been able to, to create a lot of really good collaborative um, success across different functions of the group. So if you think about engineering in nature, you know, software engineering, computer engineering, data engineering, what does an engineer do? Engineers find solutions to problems through a series of steps. So um, I'm you know, very fortunate that that was my background. And I think I've been able to apply that to our world now. Well, certainly congrats on all your successes and excited to continue to see you and, and Logitix grow. And, you know, the, the I word has been very prevalent in this conversation, the, the innovation. And so we talk a lot about that, Stu, and, and thinking about what's next. You and Logitix made a big splash a few months ago by leading a round of funding for True Tickets, which is a digital ticketing service revolutionizing mobile ticket distribution. And so now you're also on the board of True Tickets. Why was that crucial in the success of Logitix and the overall live event industry? It's different, right? That it's different. It's new. I think with True Tickets, it's definitely early. And I'd probably even tell you that our thesis in investing in True Tickets still has some unanswered, unanswered questions. Um, you know, with True Tickets specifically, we love their management team. They've had a lot of success in the performing arts space. I personally, and we as a business believe that digital tickets, blockchain, NFTs, the metaverse, all those things are going to have a significant impact in our space. Some are, some already are. Um, and this investment really gives us a front row seat to not only watch, but to participate and help drive that innovation. You know, we serve a lot of stakeholders, whether it's our rights holder partners, professional sellers, primary ticketing companies, ticket exchanges. Um, so staying involved in emerging technologies, um, especially one that's been you know, number one in everyone's buzzword with blockchain was just critical. So we are right now excited to begin collaborative product discovery with True Tickets to see really how our combined offerings can benefit the industry as a whole. Um, while also making sure that we're looking out for all of our partners to make sure there's not this emerging technology that's going to cut somebody out of the pie. Um, and then for me personally, just, you know, evolving in my role at, at Logitix and now taking the board seat, you know, it's, it's definitely given me a different perspective. You know, sometimes I can get frustrated with the conversations we have with our board. And now kind of I'm on the other seat and asking some of those very similar uh, questions and having those same discussions. So it's actually helped me from a career growth perspective to be able to take that seat. No, absolutely. And you think about innovation. One of the things that, that ties into that is that proactive mindset and thinking ahead of things. And so what do you feel like are some key areas that people should really be watching in the ticketing business in the next couple of years? Live events in, in the metaverse to me is fascinating. Um, I don't think we are too far off from having an experience that people can you know, attend events digitally and, and the discrepancy between physically attending an event and virtually attending the event is minimal. Um, you know, so thinking about how those events are ticketed will be interesting. I think kind of more shorter term, uh, really the industry-wide commitment to collaborate and reduce friction 
we've been seeing and, and we're participating in more and more direct integrations across the entire transaction chain. And that's leading to a better experience for the buyer, the seller, the scanner, really everybody. You know, nobody wins when there's an issue at the box office or, or fans have an unpleasant experience getting into an event they paid a lot of money for. So even with more and more players entering the space every week, we're really starting to see everything flatten out. And it goes back to the point about competition, you know, choice, variety, um, trusts, all those things are driven by competition and, and they're going to improve the way that buyers and sellers transact and deliver tickets, regardless of, of where, where that source or destination is. Awesome. Well, certainly looking forward to it. And so what a great career you've had. As you think back to your time in your career path, what has been your best memory? Oh, God. You know, I, I will, I'll never, you know, you know me, I'm a grateful person. Um, I will never not feel incredibly fortunate you know, with all the events we get to attend, you know, many of them with you. Uh, to this day, I'd say my all-time favorite memory at, at an event specifically was actually an East Coast Hockey League game. Um, you know, there's probably people that listen to the podcast who don't even know what the ECHL is, so I guess it's best to compare it to maybe like double-A in baseball. Yeah. Um, well, when I was with the Panthers, uh, one of the teams I had to regularly visit and scout was the Florida Everblades over near Fort Myers, Florida. They were just a couple hours away across the state. So one season I saw, I don't know, half a dozen games or so that year, and they ended up going to the Kelly Cup, which was their championship. And uh, they had the clinching game at home. And we rounded up a bunch of coworkers to go watch the game just as fans. And um, it's a small building, 6,500 people, but it was packed and it was rowdy. And we're sitting there and they end up scoring the cup clinching goal right in front of us in overtime, you know, right where we were sitting. And it was just awesome. And, and looking back at it, like, I don't give a shit about the fact that the Everblades won. It was really about, you know, the people that we were with um, yeah. and the memories made there. Um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, working in sports, you know it better than anyone, like building a culture, like it's it's like a family, you know, yep. going to, everyone has their local post-game bar, you know, thinking about all the drama, all the fun that you have with your coworkers, um, you know, so I think the memories of, of who you're working with, with that family, taking the trips with them, you know, going to the weddings of, you know, two people who were inside sales who ended up meeting and getting married, going to games together, by far, those are the best memories I have. No, it all comes down to people. So this has been awesome. To close it out, I like to put our guests on the hustle hot seats. You ready for this? Mm, yes. Perfect. Well, no, I know I living in Florida, we love being out on the boat. So if you had a boat, what would you name it? Um, you know, I'm a big fan of Greek mythology. So if I had a boat, I would call it the SS Sisyphus. And, uh, for those who don't know, Sisyphus was the guy who got punished in hell, having to roll a, a giant boulder up a hill. And every time he got close to the top of the hill, the boulder rolled right back down. So um, I imagine that's exactly what owning a boat would look like. I'd actually <laughs> say if there's, if there's any advice I would give anyone listening to the podcast, it's don't own a boat. And uh, I would just join a boat club. Yeah, exactly. If a movie was made about your life, who would you want to play you? I guess since I said it earlier, I'll have to be consistent and say Jonah Hill. All right. What is the last thing you completed on your bucket list? Oh, man. Uh, Cop-out answer is to be on 52 Weeks of Hustle. Uh, <laughs> it's a good question. I, I honestly don't think I have much of a bucket list. I, the biggest one that I've been putting off that I wanted to do is I wanted to go climb base camp in Mount Everest. Um, you know, unfortunately it means having to take a couple weeks away. Um, I'm hoping to do that soon. So that's probably next on my bucket list, but for now, yeah, I'd say, you know, the last 10 months 
have been a little bit heads down with, with the role change. So this is about as exciting as things get. <laughs> well, Stu, to close it out, what are three key takeaways you'd give every listener to be in your shoes one day? Okay, three takeaways. So number one, I would say uh, I love my favorite productivity hack. And it is that if something takes 60 seconds or less, do it now. Um, procrastinating on the small stuff is just going to build up and you know, mentally to cross things off the list to get them done to me has been a really good way to get a quick, consistent dopamine dose throughout the day. And, and it helps keep you feeling accomplished. Um, second, as a data person, if you can't track things, you can't change them. So set your goals, document, track, and constantly evaluate. Um, another one of my favorite phrases is to begin with the end in mind. And what I mean by that is think about where you want to get to personally and professionally, and then back into all the things you'll need to do to get there. Write them down. Um, document, again, journal review and course correct. It really is the best way to you know, stay on path and make sure you get to where you want to go. And, uh, and then last is really to know when to move on and when to double down. You know, one of my favorite books, besides Hustle Your Way to Success in Sports, uh, is called The Dip. And it's about understanding how to quit strategically. If you've ever said something like, I've already come this, come this far or I've put too much time into it, you're probably failing it, falling into that trap. Um, so knowing when you have to bear down and really dig into something and commit versus when to say, forget it and move on to me is a really good skill set. Um, time and mind share is incredibly valuable. So making sure to choose what you want to spend them on, um, you have to really treat it as such. Well, I certainly appreciate all the support on the, the podcast and the book, but you know, those, those three key takeaways and all the advice been great. You're absolutely right. You know, why procrastinate? Do it now. I love the 60 seconds or less because a lot of things you can accomplish then. You know, if you can't track, you can't change. That's everything you do. Like if you're not tracking what you're doing, the definition of insanity becomes, you know, very prevalent. And, you know, I love it. Amen. When to double down, when to move on. So, Sue, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate your time, your expertise, and certainly our friendship. Enjoyed it. Looking forward to doing it again. Again, this is Travis Apple. Thank you for listening to 52 Weeks of Hustle. Please be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. We'll be back next week with another industry leader. Have a great week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.